Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Sports podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone, and I'm a senior lecturer at Macquarie University. And I'm here today to speak with David Steele, who has been a professional sports journalist for more than 35 years. He's written for the Sporting News, AOL, the Baltimore Sun, the San Francisco Chronicle, and Newsday, and has contributed to ESPN's The Undefeated, USA Today, and the NAACP's The Crisis Magazine. He's the author of an earlier book, Silent Gesture, the autobiography of Tommy Smith with Temple University, and Four Generations of Color, another earlier book, the autobiography of pioneering basketball scout and sports agent Miles McAfee. He's won numerous awards uh, from the from many organizations, including the National Association of Black Journalists, the Association of Black Media Workers, the Associated Press Sports Editors, and the Society of Professional Journalists. He is a graduate of the University of Maryland at College Park, and he serves on the advisory board for the Shirley Povich Center for Sports Journalism at his alma mater. And the reason we're here today is because David Steele is also the author of just a, a fabulous book I loved reading. And I was just saying today before we started that I wished I'd read it before because I've, I've talked about some of this before and I needed this book so badly. Um, but this new book is called It Was Always a Choice, Picking Up the Baton of Athlete Activism. It's also out from Temple Press in 2022. So thank you so much for joining me, David. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to uh, be able to speak to you and to speak to uh, speak to your audience uh, there on the other side of the world. <laughs> well, you know what? It's a glo- it's a real global audience these days. Um, we get emails from all over the place. Uh, so lots from the U.S., lots from Europe, and from Australasia as well. Uh, so, Dave, I always start. This is the first question I, I give everyone. How did you develop this project? What what made you want to write about? And maybe I haven't given too much away. (laughs) Maybe you want to tell (laughs) us a little bit about the the book, uh, just a few sentences about what it's about and then how you developed it. Yeah, the uh, the book is, and and I I appreciate you saying that you'd you'd read it earlier because it's very tied into the sort of things that uh, the sports world uh, in general, sort of across the board, it certainly, you know, in, in the U.S. has been very, very focused on, on on a lot of different levels and in a way for better or for worse for the last, you know, pretty much close to a decade. Um, you started to see the the basically the Black Lives Matter movement um, uh, starting on in, in a lot of different areas. And we saw that the, the, the influence it started to have in sports and also um, the way that athletes uh, who are so visible and so they 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 have so much influence and their voices are listened to so much more than so many other people, uh, certainly here and obviously in a lot of other cultures around the world as well. How they were reacting, how people were reacting to them, and whether people were really paying attention to you know what their messages were and whether they were really being allowed to 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 to, to portray the messages that they really wanted to. So this has been going on for a long time, and sort of the center point of the book is uh, Colin Kaepernick's uh, protests uh, before NFL games while the National Anthem was playing, where he was first sitting down during the National Anthem and then later uh, taking a knee. And that became a movement that spread all over sports and then across the world. And 
it sort of uh, went on for there. So that's sort of where the, the sort of the, the fulcrum of, of where this uh, where, where this book uh, came from. Now, uh, as you mentioned, and I really appreciate you mentioning that, you know, I had had the great opportunity to uh, uh, work with Tommy Smith on his uh, autobiography uh, that was published in 2007. Um, I'd been working on it for pretty much the close to five years. I first met uh, Dr. Smith when he was still teaching uh, in, in, Cal in Southern California at uh, Santa Monica College. And uh, he was uh, being honored uh, by various organizations as one of the most prominent athletes of the 20th century. And this, of course, was in 1999 at the end of the, at the, end of the last millennium. Um, I got a chance to talk to him when I was writing for the San Francisco Chronicle. I was a columnist there, um, you know, about the impact he had and who he was and what he was doing and, and how long, you know, his legacy was, was, was really standing up. Um, and even at that time, they were in, in discussions at San Jose State, his alma mater, of uh, erecting a statue of himself and John Carlos uh, posing with their face, fist raised as they did in 1968 at the Mexico City Olympics. Um, a few years passed, he, word sort of came out uh, that he wanted to do the autobiography. He and I put, he, you know, we, we put our heads together. We, talk, we, we talked about whether I would be the one to do it. Uh, he agreed, thankfully for me. <laughs> I impressed him <laughs> enough that he wanted to, uh, that, that he wanted to do it. And we put our heads together and, 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 and we did the book. And that has been something that's been you know, very everlasting and very impactful. It was really gratifying to me to have an opportunity to tell us, uh, help tell his story. So fast forward from there to uh, 2018. That was the 50th anniversary of the Mexico City Olympics. Uh, I was with the Sporting News at the time, and they came to me and said, we would love for you to do uh, a, a retrospective of what happened, what it meant then, and what it means today, especially in the context of what was going on with Colin Kaepernick and the NFL and the sports world at that time. This was a couple of years after he first began protesting. He was by that time out of the NFL, but there were still things that were going on inside the NFL uh, related to, to protest, to players having voices, to Donald Trump then being in office and saying the things that he said about athletes telling him they needed to shut up and that they should be fired and that they were SOBs and they hated America, they should be deported. And there was this entire cultural tug of war that was going on between uh, between these two sides, whether athletes should have a voice or shouldn't they. Uh, so I wrote this big piece for, uh, for the Sporting News, uh, bringing all those together and putting them into context and adding on the other layers of historical context. You know, what other athletes had done preceding Tommy Smith and John Carlos, dating back even to the beginning of the 20th century, and sort of projecting forward where it might go. It turned out to be a pretty effective um, uh, 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 story for, uh, for Sporting News. Won, won a couple of awards, got a lot of attention and stuff like that. Now you sort of fast forward from there to 2020. Now you're in the middle of the summer of the George Floyd protests. And again, they started here in the U.S. Um, you know, it was... It, it became basically the last straw for so many people. They it pushed people out, it pushed people out into the streets to to speak their minds, to to to, to really join together people that in a, lot, in a lot of cases you didn't know were going to join your cause. Um, but they all you know mobilized in ways that even in my lifetime, um, you know, hadn't really happened. And again, harkened back to not just what Colin Kaepernick had uh, had done and what he brought attention to but what everybody who preceded him had done as well and how society and how this culture reacted to it. Uh, and as this all was sort of going on, we saw it evolve toward eventually uh, the NBA, which was then in the bubble. And this, of course, was during the pandemic. You know, the Milwaukee Bucks and the players in the WNBA who were in the middle of their season saying, we're just going to we're just not going to take the court at all. We're going to stop playing. We're going to go on a little wildcat strike, you know, in protest of everything that's going on. Really, at that point, triggered by another police shooting. This is the one in Kenosha, uh, Wisconsin. And this is also the one that Kyle Rittenhouse went off and became vigilante um, about as well. So th th these were the conditions that were taking place in the middle of that summer. And at that point, 
uh, I had my, uh, my, my agent, uh, I had a great conversation with him because we stayed in touch after the, uh, Tommy Smith book came about and everything. We always bounced ideas off each other. And he asked me, is there a book in everything that's going on right now? And I said, I feel like there is because this is really in a sense, what I just finished writing about a couple of years ago and what I've sort of touched on in my writings, uh, since then, as all of this was evolving, um, in, in, in the sports world and in society at large, uh, let's say, let's, let's, let's lay that out, turn it into a proposal and see if anyone is interested in it. And then great, you know, grateful to me, uh, Temple University Press, who had published the Tommy Smith book, reached out again and said, we would love to, uh, you know, to be a part of this, let's put our heads together and, and let's do this. And we turned it around and what seemed like to me in record time, it was like a blur from the time <laughs> we originally talked about it to the actual time that, I, that you know, well, uh, 20, time to 20, 2022 is a very fast, is a very fast yeah. uh, turnaround for a book. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it flew. It really yeah. flew. And, and on top of that, you know, things were continuing to change and continuing to happen. So I'm like, adding layers on top of it even after yeah. i finished the manuscript and now i'm adding to it and my editors are saying hey do you want to bring this into it do you want to try to you know uh, uh uh you know capsulize that into it i'm just like i think we have to so it was you, really a moving target in a lot of ways and uh that all became part of the histories book. in some ways in my from my yeah. point you're writing two histories because you're you're writing history at the moment you know this this contemporary period moment in which and living overseas, you know, I could tell you from my experience in Australia, at least, the George Floyd protests had a certain impact. But once once the athletes became involved, people overseas started paying attention in a different way because these were people that they had already had an experience with. And it was also in a language that Australians were somewhat familiar with because athlete protests coming because of the existence of Peter Norman <laughs> as well. Mm -hmm. Australians had a particular kind of um, a particular kind of experience with with American athlete protests. And so all of a sudden it was transferred into a language that was more understandable for them. Um, but you weren't just writing about the contemporary moment in your book. Your book doesn't proceed exactly chronologically, which is a which was a good thing for me when I was reading it because you flash back and forth from the contemporary moment and then you tie that back into the past and then the contemporary moment again and you tie that back into the past. So I lo I love that in reading it. Although I do have to I want to ask you a very tough question at the very beginning. Um, I think is a tough question for me at least. Um, but I think you have an easy answer because I think you answered it in your book. But um, I, I, I'd love to hear you talk because part of what I think part of the part of the I mean explaining the history was what I one of the things I loved about the book but you're also a journalist and you're in some ways I would say this is a piece of activism as well and so I wonder you know is it a requirement for athletes to use their position to make the world a better place was that a kind of fundamental underlying principle in the book for you is it something that you think athletes should and must do? You know, I, I, that that is a that is such a great question. I think it's sort of the a, a universal question because every time that athletes feel the urge to to speak out or to take an activist role in this, and every time that the public and the audience sees you know these these upheavals in society and in the culture and wonders whether these incredibly visible people in, like you said, you know, who are speaking a language that everybody understands, it translates perfectly everywhere, you know, regardless of any sort of barriers, you know, sh should they take advantage of that? Or should they just say, we're going to stay in our, you know, our, in our corner, in our, in our silo and just be entertainers, which is still the sort of everybody's entry point into what they do and, and, and who they are. And as it turned out, that really kind of uh, was the guiding force in that original um, uh, story for the Sporting News back in 2018, because my first draft sort of circled that. And my editors, you know, read it and said, you should really drill down on the idea of athletes just making a choice, deciding 
whether or not they were going to do this and what the repercussions might be on both sides of it. You know, it, it may really make it a yes or no thing and, and, and insert yourself into it and tell us what you want, what you think it should be and back it up. And so that's what guided me in that. And that again is what guided me uh, in, in, in writing the book as well and sort of posing it as this is an incredibly courageous thing that athletes are doing in order to do this because the, the consequences are so vast and so in some cases so final and they, 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 they stick to you forever. You know, this is how Tommy Smith and John Carlos will be known for the rest of their lives. This is how Jack Johnson will be known for what was known for the rest of his, for the rest of eternity. Muhammad Ali, the same thing. Um, you know, just so many other examples of which I wanted to make sure were encapsulated in the book. And on the other side of it, you know, not just the contemporary athletes who we saw during both the George Floyd protests and Colin Kaepernick's initial, you know, foray into, you know, uh, active protest on the field. Those athletes who resisted very loudly, very vehemently, and who sided with not only the status quo, but with the very people that Colin Kaepernick was and all of his supporters are saying, they're the oppressors, um, you know, they're going to be tagged with that forever as well. And of course, the, the other prominent athletes who have been in, in positions of power and visibility and have the bigger platforms and, than almost anybody on the planet, including other entertainers, including politicians, including all sorts of world leaders of everywhere. And who said, nope, this, I'm just going to make this all about me. I'm going to protect my, you know, my, my, my financial future. I'm going to protect my, my current and, and future fame. You know, that's why, I'm, that's why I put special focus on the people like Michael Jordan and the people like Tiger Woods and the people like O.J. Simpson and a lot of the NFL people, the other current athletes who sort of put their hand up and said, no, that's not me. Don't come asking me about that and don't, uh, leave, you know, leave me alone or, or would say, you're just flat out wrong. You know, we reject your premise. We reject, we reject what you're doing. That's where you get into the whole stick to sports you know, shut up and dribble, you know, respect the troops, all that, that, that whole uh, sort of line of thinking. And that's what eventually led to the book getting the title that it did. And I have to credit the marketing people at Temple <laughs> for coming up with it. Because I threw, I threw a lot of options at them. They threw a lot of options at me. And when they said, when they made choice, uh, you know, sort of the centerpiece of the title, I said, that, that, that kind of hits it square on the head. Let's run with that. And they said, well, we got, we got titles. Let's run, let, let's go with it. Cause that's really, that's really sort of at the core of what the book is about. I, I loved it. Well, I, I, I thought there were a lot of different audiences for the book, honestly, too. I mean, David, I thought, of course, like historians, and I can see this fitting right in with sports history class, uh, but just general readers who want to actually, general readers are open to actually understanding why Colin Kaepernick <laughs> took a knee, um, would, would benefit from reading the book. But the other group of people I was like, oh, this should be required reading is, you know, athletes <laughs> who, <laughs> who have to understand kind of the platform that they're giving. And also, as you say, that that there isn't really always um, an option to 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 not choose, like, frankly, and fundamentally, it certain moments in history when you're being asked to choose, not choosing is a choice. Standing is a choice, um, you know, and, and and kneeling is a choice, right? And and um, so athletes need to know, like, they're going to be drawn into this whether they want to or not. <laughs> um, exactly. And then they have to often have to answer questions later, like, why, why, why didn't you? You know, uh -huh. why, why didn't you? <laughs> you know, yeah. and not just two years later, three years later, but maybe 50 years later. Yes. Yeah. That, and that, that, you know, that's really what they confront without realizing that that's what they're confronting because they're thinking sort of in the moment, you know, is this going to hurt me? Is this going to damage me right now? You know, I don't want to do anything to hurt what I have here because this is something that I may never have again. I, you know, one thing they do, they are fairly aware of across the board with some very, very few exceptions. They understand their own mortality in, in the sport. They know that, you know, this stage is available to them for a very short amount of time. And it's also a very short amount of time that they're going to have that sort of earning power, that sort of visibility. You know, when you talk about, you know, uh, people's athletic peaks being 
before their age of 30 and that it's a miracle if they're still <laughs> in that in that realm yeah. in their yeah, mid 30s sure. and that it's just you're you're a rare almost godlike figure if you're doing it in your 40s LeBron Whereas, James you know, Tom Brady, and that's pretty, you know, very yeah. short. List. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. I mean, that, that's a that's a that's an incredibly short list, and uh, you know, so they think they 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 think in those terms. And now the and the other issue that that Dash have to really kind of consider with all of this is that you know even if they want to, and this was kind of what uh, Colin Kaepernick went through, and I sort of touched on it when he met with uh, Dr. Harry Edwards, you know, who has all this, you know. Uh, rich history with uh, Tommy's with the John Carlos in the Olympics boycott, you know, he understood that he didn't have all the knowledge he needed to, you know, equip himself as he did this, you know, he just sort of made a move, a move of, uh, of, of his conscience. Um, and he felt pretty solid with that, but he knew that he needed e- even more uh, solidity with, uh, you know, with, with what he was doing. And a lot of athletes, understandably so, know that they're not equipped in a lot of ways to to take that position because of, you know, you, you, you need to understand that history. You need to understand what came before. You need to understand the complexities and you need to be ready for those repercussions. And no matter how prepared you think you are, you're really not. I mean, they all will eventually tell you that, that, you know, they 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 knew that it was going to be bad, but they didn't know the specifics of how it, of how it was going to be bad. And it really ends up doing, you know, damage to you. You know, one thing that we always talk about uh, with, uh, about Jackie Robinson, you know, um, he died at such an incredibly young age and it's really kind of accepted as, as almost gospel that the wear and tear mentally and psychologically of what he did shortened his life. It literally took maybe as many decades off his life. I mean, he was one of the great athletes this world has ever produced. And, you know, he looked like, you know, in, in his early 50s, he looked like he was 80. So, you know, with understanding that they go through that and understanding what Ali went through, it's like you're pr- the prime of your boxing life. You're, you, you were just a, a boxer that nobody could even compare themselves to. And you're just going to have that taken away from you. And you will never get, no matter what you did the rest of your career, you will never get those years back. We'll never know what you'll be able to do, what, what, what you could have done during that time. Colin Kaepernick's football career ended at 29. You know, we're, I think we're, pre, we're all pretty comfortable in saying he's never going to set foot on the football field again. You know, it's been seven years now. He's not coming back. You know, we'll never know how good well, he could have been. He'll step foot on a football field again in 20 years when the NFL is giving him some award. And he's, a, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's when he'll next be on the football it field. I mean, it is. It, it is truly, yeah, and, and, and that's why, it, and I made that parallel because I had a, a, a few people who I had the opportunity to speak to both for the, the book and for the, the and for the original article. They said that it's like, look, you know, look at what happened with, with, with Tommy Smith and Jock Carlos, the fact that they built a statue on campus at a time when, you know, you know, years, decades after they were students. And when they came back from Mexico City, you know, they were, they, they had to take classes at night you know, because they thought that if people saw them on campus, you know, their lives would be in danger, you know. And now here they are, the, you know, the, the, the state, the university was was honoring them and naming things after them and directing a statue and all those things. And, and, th- and this is the sort of thing that happens. It's like, hey, well, one day somebody's going to build a statue to Colin Kaepernick and, all, and they'll all talk about how his bravery and his, uh, his sacrifice I, I and mean, all that. I, I actually, I have no doubt that that will happen. I have, I have no doubt. But look, and if we jump to that chapter of the book, we'd be jumping right to the end of your book. Uh, but we don't want to do <laughs> yeah. that. So I, look, I, you, you've talked a lot about Tom, Tommy Smith and John Carlos in '68. So your first chapter is kind of positioning them as the spiritual predecessors. So I, I'd love though to jump even earlier because part of the part of the strength of this book for me was that you you trace this long durée of black um athlete resistance and you start with figures that maybe we're somewhat familiar with and we're comfortable with their with their position in this kind of idea of they challenged the they challenged the status quo but they're but they're the good people you know <laughs> something like that <laughs> Uh, you know, yeah. uh, especially Jackie Robinson and Jesse Owens, people that uh, I'd say most American sports fans who are invested and interested, but maybe not activists themselves. They're quite comfortable with 
And your chapter on them, I think, complicates in some ways their legacy, but also burn, burnishes it in showing a lot of that they had to overcome. So I wonder if you can you can talk about why um, in your second chapter you go to talk about Jack Johnson, Joe Lewis, Jesse Owens, Jackie Robinson. Yeah, they I, they, they because the, their roles in all of this, you know, were so important that you just can't tell the history of of, of, of this sort of activism without talking about them, that it just didn't start with a, hey, you know, Jack Johnson, heavyweight champ, 1908, and then jump 60 years and then say, hey, look what happened at the, uh, look what happened at the Olympics. Um, you know, and it puts, you know, it puts this, that, that, that sort of activism and the struggle they faced into more context. And it reminds everybody uh, and this is something that the old timers tell the younger people in the, in the uh, succeeding generations all the time. It's like, you know, we're fighting the same fight over and over and over and over again. So the fight that Jack, that Jack Johnson faced and all those others is so similar in so many ways to what, you know, Colin Kaepernick and all the people who are out there for, for, for George Floyd, um, you know, had, had to go through. Um, and again, he's an example of what we just talked about. It's like, you know, he lost his career because the establishment just decided to take it away from him. You know, they were offended by him. They're offended by his his actions, the fact that he wasn't, you know, uh, uh, he, he, he didn't compromise. He didn't make himself smaller to make other people comfortable. Uh, so they said, we're going to knock you down. We're going to chop. We're, we're going to chop a few, chop your legs out from under you. And we're going to, again, put an end to your uh, to your career, to your your championship hopes, and again, in more or less his uh, his prime, you know, we we will again never know how great he could have, uh, you know, how far he could have taken it, because there was this literal worldwide determination to not allow a black a, a black man who was not deferential, you know, to white society, to be to hold the most powerful uh, crown in sports. You know, whatever, you know, whatever we think about the heavyweight champion of the world right now, it's nothing compared to what it looked like right. 120 years ago or whatever. So he had to um, come all the way down here to Sydney to fight, to fight. To... Yeah. <laughs> the, the ten, you know, it, it, it again just wraps worldwide. It really does. It does. It, it, his, his life and his story and his, his narrative reaches to Sydney and to France and to all these parts of Europe and, uh, you know, zigzags all over the country. And, you know, and, and it's still, it's still just really this really crazy thing that the signature fight uh, of his career, the fight against Jim Jeffries was on the 4th of July. You know, <laughs> it was just, you know, this thing where he won, you know, he defeated the great white hope after just the months and months and months of hype. And the reaction by this country was for just to, to have massive, massive race rides in every major city and a bunch of little small cities, uh, in America, just marauding white mobs, murdering, uh, you know, more scores and scores of uh, and attacking scores and scores of, uh, of black people. And that's the sort of thing, you know, see, it's not necessarily whitewashing history, but it's the sort of thing that can get lost when you sort of minimize or reduce him to, hey, he, he faced a lot of adversity, but now he's a legend, you know, and you don't really fill in the cracks. You don't really feel, uh, you know, uh, put the little details in that just sort of reminds everybody of the, the, the sort of obstacles that he faced and the toll that it took on him. And it's, it, it, and, and one of the really important things I wanted to make sure I do, and I try to do this in all my writing as well, is to remind everybody that these athletes who we sort of, you know, uh, you know, minimize in a lot of ways, we just sort of reduce them to, you know, their, their greatest skill uh, to remind everybody that they're humans. And that they live in society, they're part of society, you know, and they're not, you know, they're not a morality tale. They're people who live a daily life of, you know, of, of people in this country. And so he was living the daily life of a black man in 1900s America. So that's one reason he was, it was important to sort of establish him and, you know, what he meant to just the notion of activism and of what, why he did things the way he did. The same school went for Paul Robeson um, before everything else he did, before all the stage stuff and the singing and the just the, the world traveling and all of that, he was a football star. He was a, just an incredible multi-sport athlete who faced 
you know, just unfathomable discrimination that every time you think of say what, you know, again, what a cat, what a Colin Kaepernick or a, you know, Donovan McNabb or a Jalen Hurts or a Lamar Jackson or somebody like that faces now, think of what he was facing in 1919 in college football. The college football is maybe like what, 20 or 30 years old. You know, yeah. the rules were just as, you know, uh, stripped down and raw. The game was, you know, the whole no face masks, the leather helmets, and, you know, you could literally beat somebody to death, you know, at that point. And he was, you know, not only this prominent black player, but he was this prominent student and scholar there at a almost all white school. And these are the things that he faced. And that, again, shaped who he was and who he became. Uh, as an athlete and the same was with you sort of tell the backstory of Jackie Robinson you tell a lot of the backstory of Jesse Owens you tell the sort of backstory of, of Joe Lewis who are held up today as icons yeah. of liberation and all these things and then you sort of talk about what they had to do just to navigate life at, at that time and then make the decisions that they made and why they made them I, I, I love I love this chapter because it it presents a really it presents a really nuanced case. Like these guys, they are, they have become icons and they suffered. I mean, talking, talking about Robeson being like beat up in his first practice, he shows up and the other guys on the team just beat the shit out of him in the first practice <laughs> just because he's a black guy. Yeah. Um, and, the, the, and, and Jack Johnson just tormented because he's basically because he's a black guy who wants to live in the world in a way that people don't think black people should be able to live. But at the same time, I mean, this, this, chapter i mean the title of it your presence is an act of protest really points out that uh, you know owens and robinson in particular had to had to and and did subsume so much of themselves like hid so much of themselves in order to be present in order so that their presence could be that act of protest but that's so different than than carlos and smith who in many ways refused to do that so it, it traced this kind of you trace this narrative of of in some ways, kind of the civil rights movement, you know, through through a, a, athletics in a way that we we don't. I mean, I not that I didn't learn civil rights that way. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's it, it is you know again sort of telling about how not just how it's not not necessarily how it's taught because that that's almost a different conversation, but just yeah, how yeah. The, how the history is passed along, how people learn it, how people. Uh, just give it to the next generation, how they discuss it among themselves and how the stories uh, about these people sort of, uh, sort of evolve. I mean, you know, we talk about Jackie Robinson. It's all about, wow, he turned the other cheek. You know, we talk about Joe Lewis and it's all about, oh, uh, he defeated the not he defeated Nazism in the fight against Schmeling. And he was this guy in world war two, who was just this, this almost superhuman human being who went to serve his country and Jesse Owens, he defeated Hitler face to face in Berlin. And, you know, you, you know, it's not even a matter of like stripping that away to find him. It's like really more of an act of fleshing them out and understanding what it took to get them to where they were, why they decided to do that and, and, and what it meant for them to do that. And again, sort of the, you know, the sacrifices they had to make, I mean, I'm, and the thing is, one reason I really want to include Joe Lewis is that, you know, I read so much about him growing, uh, growing up being a certain way. And I started reading, you know, more sort of understanding his life better. And that's when you see the things like, you know, don't ever pose in a photo with a white woman. You know, don't smile when you knock the opponent out. You know, uh, you know, don't speak directly to this person or look, raise your eyes at that person. And there's just this entire, you know... <laughs> Uh, set of rules that he had to adhere to just to be able to step into the ring and try to claim a title that, you know, supposedly everybody was entitled to to fight for, you know, and again, you know, to, to and again, to put him into historical context, you know, it kind of hits people in the face for lack of a better metaphor, unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> that he was the first black heavyweight champion after Jack Johnson. I was like three Three decades later that Joe Lewis came to say, in between, again, just careers just lost to the side. It's like literally the the boxing world and the world in general just said, we're not letting that ever happen again. 
And it literally took from before World War One to almost the start of World War Two before somebody else was alive. Because somebody who was just, you just literally were unable to withhold or prevent him from fighting for, you know, fighting for the heavyweight title anymore. And, you know, then he did and he, to see, he became uh, became what he was. So, and the same thing with, with Jackie Robinson. I mean, he arrives or things that everything sort of converges after World War II when there was no longer an argument, a, a logical argument at least, to say, we're going to exclude you from all these areas of society after we went around the world proclaiming, you know, that we had freed all these people and all these countries from tyranny and, and, and all these things and fought for equality. And then you're going to come back to this country and say, we're still going to have separate leagues for black and white players in baseball. Well, no, we're not going to do that. And Jackie yeah. Robinson was there for it. And again, it had to be that guy. It couldn't be everybody. It had to be him. Yeah. And he did what he did. For, for listeners, uh, you might think that the book is only about the 1920s and 30s, because that's what it's <laughs> but we're really only just touching on it. It goes, it goes, in, it goes through the whole of the 20th century, and of course, we talked about uh, 68 games. Uh, but it's kind of the w way we're moving is kind of due to the way the book moves, because it moves back and forth in time as it matches moments in the contemporary period to the past. Um, there's a couple of key, like key chapters and key things that I want to hit on. But one thing I wanted to hit on. It's kind of your you have these two chapters, sparse star spangled uh, resistance and Justice League. And one of the things you really bring out of both of those chapters is um, one that Jack uh, that Colin Kaepernick is not at all the first person to to <laughs> to protest during the national anthem. But that right. women have had played a huge role in this movement as well. And you introduced me to someone who I'm a sports historian and I read a lot. I mean, I'm mostly you know, my own training is in European sports history. And obviously I teach uh, in Australia, so I have to familiarize myself there. But American sports history is is resonant everywhere. But I had never heard of uh, Rosianna Rose Robinson before. So that was someone <laughs> who I was introduced to through the book. So I guess I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about about the role of women in this story too because otherwise we might just think it's all jack it goes from jackie robinson it goes you know jack <laughs> johnson to jackie robinson to 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 smith and carlos and then to kaepernick and there's no way right. but that's not the case it is not yeah and and that i i just felt that that was you know just absolute absolutely required that i could not ignore them and i think that the initial uh impulse to make sure that they that the women got to play came from watching the WNBA and it was really fortunate, you know, I'm based in the uh, DC area and there were players on the, you know, WNBA's Washington team, the Mystics, um, who were so active and so, so much in the forefront of what was happening um, and, and the sort of movement that the league was, uh, what was inspiring and that I just felt that it would be doing a great disservice if anything about what they were doing was, uh, was downplayed at all. And I sort of, you know, got that same sense again from that summer of uh, of 2020 when you know the 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 world was really sort of shaken to its foundation when the bucks said we're pulling out of this playoff game you know here in the in in the bubble and you know for some understandable reasons because one they're the NBA and two because it was the playoffs and it was under unusual circumstances of course because of the pandemic but literally earlier in the day the WNBA had staged a massive league-wide protest that was almost identical to what the uh, to what the Bucks did. Um, and it's not to say, oh, they didn't get as much attention. They got a pretty decent amount of attention, especially under the circumstances. Just that the Bucks sort of overran it, you know, <laughs> later in that day, <laughs> and then it just snowballed into like everything else that happened from then on. But you know, one they had you know taken it upon themselves to do what they did that day. Two, it was a continuation of what they had been doing all that entire year, uh, you know, in terms of shedding light on what was going on because their season began almost right at the same time as the the movements began, the protests and the marches and things like that. So that they made a collective decision to shine a light on Breonna Taylor and what had happened to her in uh, in Louisville that that just a few months before uh, George Floyd was killed. Also, they had ties to everything that sparked what uh, 
uh, Colin Kaepernick had done because that same year, you know, they were the first group of pro athletes to really do an actual on-court protest. So they, you know, I didn't want to shortchange what they were doing as well. And as you sort of could, you know, once you sort of made sure that they were addressed properly and put in the proper context of everything else, it sort of served as a reminder that it's so easy to overlook what women have done in the history of, uh, you know, of, of, the, of these movements. And that's when I found out more about Rose Robinson, you know, because I had heard about her a couple times. Um, I made sure to cite the uh, the scholar who was a teacher at Penn State who had sort of brought her to everyone's attention because he went on a podcast and talked about her at great length. I did not know about him. I did an entire book about this protest in 1968 and, and only a couple of Olympics before that is what Rose Robinson did. And I kid you not, her name never came up during all that time that I was doing doing the research. But her you story is incredible. Heard of Wil- Wilma Rudolph, but you didn't hear about Rose Robinson. Right. Rob- yeah. yeah. And and Wilma Rudolph sort of fit into that, you know, what a brave war, what a what a brave, I mean, this is again not to do anything to disparage because he was literally one of my favorite athletes growing up and a role model. But she, you know, she fit into the uh your presence is a form of activism by just doing breaking barriers on the track, you know, as a black woman that had not been broken before. And so she had she moved the ball forward so far. But in that very same Olympic class, to, to, you know, they would have, if things had gone differently, Rose Robinson would have been on that exact same Olympic team with Wilma Rudolph, with then Cassius Clay, with Rayford Johnson, just just this really epic Olympic team in an in, in, it turned out to be an epic Olympics. Uh, she would have been on that team, but because she refused to stand during the national anthem at the Pan American Games in 1959, it literally brought a, a blindingly fast end to her career. She was a long jumper, and she was essentially erased from the Olympic movement, from competition, and even from her role as being, in a sense, a spokesperson for, you know, a, you know, in what was like largely a diplomatic role, which is kind of what Olympic athletes in a, in a lot of senses still do, but certainly were doing back then, Cold War stuff and, you know, going around stuff right. like that. And she said, I want no part of that. I'm not going to do that because I see what this country is doing to me. And that eroded her, you know, career and pretty much erased her from what was going on. And I felt, again, you can't tell this story without telling her story. And she needed to be put into that context and her influence needed to be elevated in so many ways. And it sort of served as a reminder in the books, like don't shortchange what the women have done. So that's why what Naomi Osaka did in 2020 at the US Open, made sure that got plenty of highlights. What the WNBA players eventually did in uh, pushing back against one of the owners uh, in the league who had been so anti protests, anti-Black Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, just insulting them, right, almost to their faces, getting her out of the league, and then taking it a huge step further by campaigning to oust her from the Senate and backing a candidate who is now in the Senate. I mean, literally changing, you know, re- redirecting the history of, uh, of this country. A, giving a, a, a tied 50-50 Senate at that mm-hmm. So exactly. very important, um, you know, it shapes the Enormous. whole political conversation. Right. And this is a group of women who, you know, in the so in the cultural landscape of this country, there's still wide swaths of this society that makes fun of them and says, you're not important. You don't belong here. Why are we why are we supposed to care about you? Why are we why is this being shoved down our throats when there are people who are stepping up in ways that even the most ardent athlete activists can't even imagine they, they've taken it to to heights that a lot of people you know don't even are, are, aren't willing to consider so you know i didn't want to give them short shrift at all and i wanted to make sure that they were that you they got the light don't. that they deserved yeah you definitely don't and and i i mean they you you paint you paint them as one of the most successful groups of protesters um and not only because they're able to to kind of achieve outcomes, which they do, and some other some other people do as well. 
but because they're so unified in some ways. And I, look, if we had more time, I'd love to to pick your brain. It's not really so much in your book, but I'd love to pick your brain about whether you think there's links between the Black Lives Matter and the LGBTQ protest movements in the WNBA that might work more syner synergistically or working together. But you move from that justice, I, and I know, and I, I suspect very strongly. I, I want to say I know you did this on purpose, uh, right into your chapter on white allies. And so you point out, you know, that one of the strengths of their protest movement was that they did it together. And yes. and one of the weaknesses in in the other leagues, at, at any rate, in in some ways, has been the the I I, I guess the the way in which white athletes have refused to join in in large numbers into the protests so i wonder if you can talk you have a few chapters in here who are, which are really hard hitting and one of them is this for me when i'm reading this i'm like aha you're this is that you always make choices chapter um but i wonder if you could tell us a bit about the importance of white uh, allies and why maybe the public responds differently and how common it is and, and how uncommon it is yeah, and, and I appreciate you pointing out that how that ties into the chapter about the, the women athletes and the, and the WNBA, because that was one of the really stark uh, differences in, 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 in what they're saying. I mean, because I think that what we've been, what we've seen and what we've understood over the years, going back generations and on through, through, through now, is that it's that, that sort of report, that, that sort of support, rather, uh, from what in some cases are white majorities and what is in other cases are, you know, small but very powerful uh, minorities is that the black athletes are really working on their own in a lot of cases, you know, even in comparison to other black athletes, but in terms in comparison to white athletes, you know, very much so. And, and with the women, certainly in the WNBA, that was, that just was not the case at all. The exact opposite. They were incredibly unified and, they used their voice because they, you know, I think they they had an understanding that, you know, there were going to be people who were going to listen to them and respect them and honor them and honor their wishes that were not going to respect them if it came from just the black players. That has not been a thing that has necessarily always been understood in all the other sports, but in the examples that I made, and I'm so glad that again they were, you know, they were they were talking here through you know an Australian lens. Um, you know, Peter Norman, I, I knew from the book that, and, and certainly Tommy Smith um, really ran that home the entire time that I was working on uh, on his autobiography that, you know, Peter Norman was central to what they did, you know, and always would be and that they were never they were never going to forget or 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 minimize what his role was because he was completely unhesitating in saying, I'm with you guys all the way. What can I do to support you? And also, what can I do to make sure that you're at the center of this and not me? You know, that's an important thing as well. And that in a lot of cases with the examples I used with uh, with, with certain NFL players, with certain, with certain NBA players, uh, some of the baseball players, there were very few, obviously, uh, support, uh, <laughs> protested in baseball, which again, I try, I try to get into. But it was very significant that the black player on the Oakland A's who uh, decided to kneel during the anthem one year, that one of his white teammates was, was the one who stood by him with a hand on his shoulder uh, that did that. Um, the same was the, case, was, the, was the case in the NFL, where they would say, what's the best way for me to support you? It's like, well, no, you don't necessarily have to kneel if you don't want to. You don't have to raise a fist if you don't want to. Um, if you just stand by me. You know, that would mean everything. And so they stood with the hand on their shoulder, making sure it was a very, very visible show of support for, for what they were doing. And yet they were still in the extreme minority because, you know, the, the league itself, with the, you know, starting with the commissioner, with all the owners, uh, the executives in the league, the head coaches, the, the general managers, things like that, were against what Colin Kaepernick and the other athletes were doing. You know, vast parts we of the. We should say uh, most of those people white, white, <laughs> white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what? It's, it's that's such a great correction because sometimes you just sort of take that for granted. But yeah, you do have to say that. But yeah, overwhelmingly majority white, which is another issue entirely. But um, the audience that they're aiming for, the sponsors, and the people who are running 
the companies that do sponsor and partner with all these sports. And, and, and this is the case, obviously, across the board. I mean, they're, they're run by not just, not just white people, but white men and white men in a certain financial category and who all have a certain political bent and which was very significant at the time because Donald Trump was president, you know? So, you know, they're in a way and they're, you know, uh, reaching out to and in, in, in themselves partnering with an audience that, you know, for them, they're the, the audience they prefer for the sport, although they're not turning away anybody's dollars, but they prefer to appeal to audiences that are just like them. So they're going to not be supportive of the black athletes and, be more supportive of the white athletes who are outspoken about him. And, you know, again, in with rare exception, the response by this white vast of white public and of white authority and of white management um, was anti-activism. It was to, you know, remember your place, to, uh, you know, stick to sports, to shut up and dribble, um, to, you know, be the entertainers and be the workers that we expect you to be that in many cases we pay you lucratively to be don't disrupt that um and if you're a white athlete like you're like like a peter norman like a a chris long like the players who were those guys teammates who stood with them you know and and spoke up on their behalf who stood next to them in the locker room during interviews and you know, who, who did all the things that you need to do to support them, you know, they were pushing against a pretty, pretty massive tide. I mean, they were being referred to in a lot of cases as being traitors, you know, so, you know, for siding with black people and their humanity, you know, that everything that, you know, you're taught about, you know, uh, sports, you know, dissolving barriers and everyone being on one team and they're all wearing one color and color no longer matters. You know, a lot of that was sort of chopped up into little bits during these protests because racial lines were being drawn in the, uh, in, in the locker rooms. And these guys broke through those and said, no, we're still teammates. So I'm going to support what he does. I, um, I, I loved, I loved this chapter and I'd love to talk more about it. And one of the other things for listeners that um, David does point out is the way that coaches can sometimes say things that, that players can't uh, Greg Popovich and Steve Kerr. And you didn't include it in the book, uh, but you you might've included even, and it very much pains me to say this because I went to Ohio State for my undergraduate, but people like Jim Harbaugh fighting for uh, pay for uh, college athletes. I'll wash my mouth. That was soap later. <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> I, I would say that you had a couple other, I, look, there's a, a, lo a lot of other chapters that I really wanted to talk about, but I especially want to get to kind of two chapters you have at the end, which I think one or, or one of them is very hard hitting, which is the chapter on OJ, Michael and Tiger and them dropping the ball. But then also this chapter, I think that went well together. Um, the White House chapter also goes well with this, but I really liked the eight minute and 46 se second <laughs> chapter, which I think really brought out for me a question of, do you have to be good to have an impact? So how much does being a successful athlete change the way in which you can tell these stories? And does that mean that successful athletes like OJ and Michael and Tiger, they have to, they they especially have to do do more because... You know, I, I'm not going to quote Spider-Man or something, but because they have to, <laughs> they have to, you know. Yeah, with, with great power, yeah, yeah. becomes a great responsibility. No, exactly. Now, and this is where you know it, that that became an interesting chapter because I mean they throughout their you know that the peak of their careers and throughout the time that you know when when you realize that their name they were really going to be immortals, that they were going to be in a position of of, of power and influence. For the rest of their lives and then on into eternity um you know they again the, the the position they were in was really unlike what any other what, what anyone else's position was in in so many ways but one thing about it sort of looking at that through the lens of you know that year of 2020 and sort of looking back and saying okay now we've experienced what the greatest of the great uh uh, how they, you know, how they were in those times. I think, you know, doesn't necessarily have to be a universal conclusion, but you certainly could very well conclude that you do not have to be that sort of athlete because 
you know, everything that Colin Kaepernick did as a player, you know, which was pretty impressive when he gets down, down to it. But a lot of players have gone to the Super Bowl. A lot of players have done amazing, indelible things on the field, you know. But they're going to be talking about Colin Kaepernick literally forever. And it's interesting that we talked about how he, he one day there's going to be a statue of him. And, you know, going into that season, I don't think anybody really thought that. <laughs> I was thinking it's like, you know, I hope that, you know, he he regains his form and gets himself back together. He's been injured. He kind of fell off. But there was all this chaos with the 49ers and including Jim Harbaugh, who you uh, <laughs> just referenced, you know. You Not know, as I hope good that, in, you the know, pro, in the pro side. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. A little different, certainly, with uh, – you yeah. know, as he has in in colleges, but um, but yeah, that that's who Colin Kaepernick was. You know, he was not Tom Brady, he was not even, and essentially, you know, he was not Cam Newton. You know, Cam Newton, you know, black quarterback who won the MVP the year before, incredible groundbreaking thing that he did. Colin Kaepernick was not on that level. You know, he's not on the level even that like the Jalen Hurts and the Lamar Jacksons are on right now. But he was sort of he was going to be part of that evolution of what the what the position was going to be, and. He wasn't really, he absolutely was not known for, you know, being outspoken and taking stance and things like that. And in that moment, he became that guy. And that's, that's how it evolved. Um, Tommy Smith and John Carlos were, you know, they were different. I mean, back in those days, yes, they were the cream of the crop of the U.S. Olympic um, uh, track and field team at the time. So, yeah, what they did was going to be, you know, really, really vocal. They had they to make did the podium it. to do their protest. They did, exactly. That was the whole point. They had to, you know, they were not going to be able to do that unless they got onto the, uh, you know, onto the medal stand. But certainly the window is open for now everybody. I mean, and again, including the, the, the WNBA players make that sort of an impact. And history has now taught us. We now have the, you know, the benefit of hindsight to say, you know, just because you're Michael Jordan, and just because you're OJ and just because you're Tiger Woods doesn't mean that you can count on them to be those sort of voices. You know, they have an important role in all of this in a way because they are they were black athletes who broke barriers in terms of, of, of visibility and popularity and endorsements and earnings and, you know, worldwide, just people loving them and, you know, selling as much as many golf clubs and, and Gatorades and folks <laughs> anybody could ever Nike imagine. Sneakers and, and yeah. And Nike sneakers. I mean, OJ with the, with the Hertz. I mean, people literally still associate Hertz with OJ, with those OJ commercials from 50 years ago. And understandably so. I mean, I, you, you turn on the TV, he's still popping up in movies and stuff. So, but, you, you know, even if you had that sort of high popularity, you just, one, you can't count on them to be at the forefront of those uh, of, of those movements. And two, the movements will go on anyway. You know, Michael Jordan kind of had to play catch up in a lot of ways during those years of Colin Kaepernick and then the George Floyd protests. I, I loved, by the way, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not a neutral observer on this either, but I, I will use this in every future argument. Uh, between who's the greatest, LeBron James or Michael Jordan. And from now on, I'm I'm going to say, not only did LeBron James do all this, but he also <laughs> <laughs> wasn't just the basketball. He had he had a, a broader social mission. He's not just a he's not just a basketball player. Um, yeah. So that I think that goes that that for me. I mean, I've always been a LeBron James fan, except for a right. short period of time. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I can guess what it was. As a Cleveland guy, I think I can probably guess what uh, period yeah. you're talking about. But uh, but yeah, and, and LeBron is such a great example of that because LeBron is stepping onto this, has stepped onto the stage that Michael Jordan kind of laid out for, for, for him. Like, who's going to really follow in his footsteps in the next several years? Things are kind of back and forth, and LeBron emerges, and LeBron has sort of changed the, 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 dy the dynamics of all of that. But probably the biggest way that he's done that is that he has said, you know, I'm in this position, I'm going to use this. And it's going to be, it, 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 there's going to be a risk. Yes, I make a lot of money, but I'm, there's, there's probably there's going to be incredible black backlash to what I do. There's going to be incredible unpopularity that I'm going to have to deal with, you know, over and over again, specifically because of that. And it's going to come from very, very high places. I mean, again, he was taking direct shots from, you know, from Donald Trump and, you know, all this support from from the Fox News Network. 
And (laughs) yeah, (laughs) and that's what you know is willing to do that. I I would love (laughs) to talk about this for a long time more, and I think we could, but I want to save some time for one last question. And I, I just want to emphasize for readers that we barely touched the surface on this book. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot more into it, and not only the the histories of certain um, black athletes that we didn't cover, uh, really important uh, figures. We didn't even really talk much about Muhammad Ali, for example. Or, I know. Or, <laughs> you know, so like we Isn't that great? It's around, yeah, we, could talk, we could talk about right, um, and we didn't. Right. Um, but I also want to really emphasize that throughout this book, there's a real line of um, if you want to think there's been a lot of progress, maybe there hasn't been as much progress as you want to think, um, which is a re- which is a really useful um, which is a really useful corrective because I do think a lot of times these black uh, athletes become these icons whose histories are very sanitized and not filled in as you were pointing out, and then get used to tell this particular story about uh, American progress over time that really jars with what we see then, why Colin Kaepernick is kneeling. Um, so this book is really useful for that. Um, and we we touched a bit earlier on, and your final chapter is a really great um, kind of prediction for what, you know, Colin Kaepernick's future might be. But I want to know, David, about your future and if you have any <laughs> future projects that we can look forward to. I know you're writing about sports all the time, but, um, you know, do you have another book up your sleeves that you, you are working on? You know, it's it's really interesting because, you know, you, you one thing you end up doing when you're doing a book, you know, you're thinking about what's going in, but you're also thinking about, wow, this probably won't make it and maybe this needs to go into a separate book. And, and that's one reason I'm so glad you mentioned when we talked about the, the the women athletes in the WNBA, that in itself is, you know, a book, a, a, a book of its own, uh, especially the, the, the LGBTQ uh, sort of battles that not just them in the league fight, but again, almost structurally similar or identical to the way this worked, how, you know, where that came from, what were the, what, what's the historical thread that ties what went, what went on decades ago to what they're facing now and what's going to be what it's going to be like in the future and understanding how how vastly different things are now compared to where they were years ago you know for women across the board and for everybody who's in those who's, who's in that category and the different challenges that they face that are that have a lot of similarity to the things we talked about in the book but also obviously are very unique you know to women uh, so that's something that I've bounced around sort of in my head for a while and thought about, but sort of in the broader context of that, you know, I've bounced around the idea of like, okay, what really would be the best follow-up follow up for a book like this? What would be the, the, the next chapter, the next edition of this? And, you know, I think about it's like, okay, what's going to be the battleground for this next time? Is it going to be exactly as, as it is now fighting for, you know, uh, uh, you know, it's things that are similar to Black Lives Matter, except maybe under under a different name. Uh, is it going to be for people's rights overall? You know, just in general. I mean, um, you know, you mentioned the we mentioned a couple college topics. I mean, that the the you know, the battleground right now is so crazy in college sports here that you know you talk about what you know the, where's that going to go and and how. How much is that going to upend everything that we've known about how that goes? You know, how that how that's been. Um, do you expand it to a world stage? Do we start talking about what goes on in literally every other country and every other continent in places in things like soccer, in things like golf, uh, in you know, again, even in basketball, since that basketball is spreading all over the place, but in, in every sport and in every culture, you know, cultures that aren't exactly like the one here, but have really strong ties to the ones to the ones here in the United States and you know how are they addressing these things um the you know the, the anti-racism movements in, in 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 international soccer in Europe you know the things that go on in the World Cup the the sports washing and the you know the hosting you know you know big events in different places you know the Olympics overall again that's sort of been been touched on. You know, I don't want to keep repeating, oh, we've only scratched the surface, but in kind of in a little way, yeah. I mean, it's a really, really vast, vast topic. And 
it, again, it sort of speaks to, again, the reach and the visibility of athletes and the enormity of their platform and their voice and coupling it with the issues that may not get addressed unless they're the ones who are speaking out about it and who are gesturing about it and who are, you know, making really concerted activist moves about it. So, you know, that's the direction I'm thinking and I'm sort of kind of soaking in the whole idea of having done this first book, but it, it hasn't, hasn't stopped, you know, me thinking about, Hey, what's next that, how do we, how do I follow this up? And that's, that sort of thing I'm thinking about in, in doing. That sounds great. And when that book comes out, I'll be sure to have you back on and we can talk about it. <laughs> I would love to come back on and do this. This has been such a great experience. Thank you so much. Oh, no, thank you for, for coming on, David. So I've been speaking today with David Steele. He is the author of It Was Always a Choice, Picking Up the Baton of Athlete Activism. It's out from Temple University Press in 2022. It's very handsome. It's very readable. It's a lot of fun, even if it raises a lot of questions. And I think pokes a stick in a lot of a lot of beehives, too, for some people. <laughs> so it will be it will be a, a, a good one for people to read. And I think a great one for people to teach as well. Um, so you've been listening to the new books in sports uh, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone. I'm a senior lecturer at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.